recorded live. If you're hearing the sound of my voice right now, that's because you're either in the chat room and you're one of the cool guys or ladies, or you've picked up a pre-edit copy of the Scoob Obsessed Netcast. Why don't you turn that one off and wait till we have an edited one to, for you to listen to, like last week where a lot of people got an unedited copy that slipped through. Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast, we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba the news. Scuba Obsessed, episode 331, is recorded live June 15th, 2017. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan. And if you don't like this weather, I don't know what you'll like. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well. Glad to be here. And we also have Kevin Ailes. How are you doing today, Kevin? Darren, I'm doing most excellent. And, and how, how about yourself? I am doing great. It's been a long week. I'm ready for it to be Thursday. And certainly appreciate the weekend coming up. But it is... Uh, Amen. Just uh, beautiful weather. Uh, for those who aren't from Michigan, uh, you certainly are going to wish you were here because this is just beautiful weather this time of year. I think this is the best weather. I'd like to have this weather all year round. It's it's probably a touch toasty, but as they say, you don't want to complain about the heat in the summer because you'll be wishing for it in the winter. Uh, uh, humidity has started to climb up a little bit, but... Uh, How's the weather it's, been? It's been, a, it's been a little warm. I mean, uh, you know, when it comes to cold, you can always put on a jacket, but it's kind of it's a little harder to get away from the heat than to get away from the cold. Uh, but hey, you know, it is summertime, and you know, having days in the upper 80s and low 90s and lots of humidity—that's just kind of Michigan for us here. Um, it is good diving weather, so it's been pretty nice. And that uh, with the lack of rain. It's given us some pretty decent visibility. So if you've been able to get out, you've been rewarded with, uh, you know, pretty good dives. So. Excellent. Well, before we get uh, jumping right on into the news, we did have a question from the chat room. So we'll, we'll start off with that. We almost answered it pre-show, and I thought we'd cover it. And I think this one's directed at you, Mac. It says, how well will a standard air tool such as a pneumatic driver, work down about 10 or 20 feet of water. They work very well. You do might want to uh, add a oil mister in it. And at least when you bring it back up, run it, you know, with dry air in a dry environment and run a little bit of oil through it. I'm kind of surprised in kind of a Mythbusters-esque opinion. I would have said that it shouldn't work underwater. Why? Well, I just figured that the uh, you know you'd, ha- you'd have to blow all the the water out of the tool and just resistance and everything. I thought it wouldn't work, but well, I guess if you're going against... if it's already powered up and you got the air through it, you're minimizing any encroachment of water in it, uh, especially as you're using it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure that the using of it actually does blow all the water out of it. Um, personally, I have not done it, but I've heard, you know, stories about people using uh, reciprocating saws and drills and things underwater that worked out pretty well for them. So. 
Yeah. So, so your advice, and, and we're talking fresh water. It would work in salt water, but you'll. Well, it'll work in salt water, but the issue there is you'll get corrosion and gummed up machinery a lot quicker in salt water. Now, we're not endorsing this practice and saying that it's good for the machinery. <laughs> I mean, oh, we no, probably no. are shortening the life, the, the, the life of, of your equipment down there, but you know, that's kind of, you got to pay to play. If, it, but if you do need to use a reciprocating saw or something down there, it, it, it does work. So Yeah. I, I personally, uh, on diving jobs that require equipment like that, unless it's real special, I love Harbor Freight. <laughs> <laughs> the cheap stuff. Yeah. yeah. Hey, it works for the there. job, and as long as you put that into your bid, you're covered. And if you can yeah. clean it and use it more than once, you've got your money back. If, I'm if, uh, now, you, you, now, we're going to go on a little sidetrack here just because I uh, can, I guess. I guess that's the reason. Um, but as everybody knows, and if you love the show, uh, we'd appreciate for you to go and donate through Patreon. You know, any amount helps. Uh, if you go to our website, www.scubaobsessed.com, look for the Patreon links. You can donate there. But one of the shows that I am donating to is a the, – the guy must be some sort of technical engineer, like a product manufacturing engineer. And he buys all sorts of uh, different uh, pieces of equipment and then takes them apart. And I especially love it when he does that to Harbor Freight. And he'll discuss, you know, he'll discuss what it's made with, where they took the shortcuts, how they got it for the price. And there'll be times he says, buy as many of these as you can because the motor they put in this is worth more than what they're charging for the whole tool. And, and since you did mention Harbor Freight, I mean, so did I, but uh, you know there was a, a lawsuit against them recently. And part of it is when you get their advertisements, it always says mm-hmm. this much money is what it's going to cost you as opposed to this amount if you bought it someplace else. You've uh-huh. seen those ads. Uh, yeah. If you had responded to that and you had bought anything in the last 10 years, you could file a claim and get a rebate. Really? Yes, and I have all my receipts. <laughs> I mean, I, you know those little trailers you can buy for 300 bucks. I mean, you can't get you know, slap some plywood on that little sucker. And uh, for hauling gear, especially for port jo- for small jobs, local, you know, you're not going to mm-hmm. do 70 miles an hour on the interstate towing that trailer. Not oh, if yeah. you're smart. But for, you know, how we do it. I mean, they're great for loading a kayak on. If you go buy a kayak trailer, you're talking $1,000. It's, it's crazy. So I love Harbor Freight. Yeah, and those little trailer kits you're talking about, you know, they're, they're not made the most sturdy, but yeah, when you, when you look at, you're only paying like a, what, 150 to $300 for the, for the units, and it costs you this that much just for the spindles and bearing setups on them there. So, and but you can reuse that on the next one. So, yeah, I just pasted a link into the chat room, and uh, this is that, that guy I was talking about that I follow. Uh, and I'm, we're just going to have to have the, have the link to the show notes because I don't know how you would describe his, his username. It, it's, I think it's Arduino versus evil. 
I, I guess is is what his channel is. But uh, we'll have we'll have links. But to, here's an example of just some of the the videos that he's he's put together, uh, and then we'll talk about one. One is the Harbor Freight Earthquake XT Impact Wrench, where he pulls that apart. He does a lot where he takes uh, different tools and compares them, like the Harbor Freight to the Dewalt. Uh, I'll warn you a little bit. His uh, language can be a little salty, like somebody who's worked in manufacturing or maybe the military. Uh, and he's he's quite prolific. He puts out about four or five videos a week. But if you're in, if you know anybody who's into any sort of engineering or industrial design, it's certainly worth it. Um, and he's taken apart KitchenAid appliances. He's taken apart. Uh, I don't know if you have you heard of this thing called the Juicero. I haven't. No, it's, no I, uh, I've not. Yeah, it's 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 kind of the the new age thing that the kids on the east and west coasts are are into. Uh, and the only reason you'd ever have one is because you're the place you work is uh, paying for it. And what it is is you get this packets of of juicy juicy fibery stuff, and then this machine presses it and gives you a little bit of drink out of it. So, you know, four or five dollar per uh, unit things, but uh, he tears the machine apart and shows you how it works. And uh, it's just interesting his take on it. I, I enjoy it. I, I used to have to, I have to watch a couple of videos and I've thrown some coin his way in appreciation, but there's a little sidetrack, but you're talking about Harbor Freight. Yeah. I just linked that, put a bookmark on it. I'll go back and yeah. look at that. The only other item I uh, advice I'd give on using any tool underwater, be proficient on the surface with it first. And if you're doing any kind of cutting, either with a, a pneumatic chainsaw or disc cutter, you got to be darn careful when you're underwater with it. I mean, as much as on the surface, but even more so. Now, question for you, as I haven't used used those. But I, I do know that the uh, air tools are designed to work, you know, at a PSI between like 90 and 120, because that's kind of like where most of your compressors operate at. Yet, if you're coming off your uh, first stage there, you're going to be coming on, you know, right about 140. So I'm guessing when these things come on, you know, when, when you turn turn that on switch, uh, they come on full speed. There's a, <laughs> there's no uh, hesitation to them whatsoever. Generally, I'm using an accumulator, and the line is pressurized to begin with. So my volume and my line to the device is done, is, is full, and I've already pre-cycled uh, it. Mm-hmm. So when I'm down there, it's, it's she's, when you pull the, the trigger, you go. Yeah. Now, are you, when like Kevin, you're talking about if you went off an air tank, like you took a cylinder with a with a regulator on it. Correct. That's what I'm thinking there. Yeah, that, that's how I yeah. listened to it. Yeah, and... Yeah. Now, Mac, were you doing it from surface supplied air? Like yes. A compressor line down. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's just where, where I'm going with this is that if you were to use the uh, you have a cylinder with you with its own first stage, you know, and you uh, adapt your uh, LP line, your uh, to be the uh, the feed line for the uh, for, for for the air tool, then you got an off. I mean. The, the pressure is a little bit higher than what you're expecting, but you know, a screwdriver or, or a, a saw is going to use a whole lot more air volume than a diver is going to. So, you know, if you're in any kind of cold water, um, I could see you certainly having having a pretty good free flow out of that too. 
not be able to turn the thing off. So. <laughs> and it's possible for your tool to freeze up also because of the same reason. Oh, mm. okay. Yeah, if, I can see if, that. If you're interested, I've got the plans for an underwater dredge that you run off a scuba tank so you can do it in a small area. Everything flows behind you, but you're using your scuba tank. Oh, nice. Hmm. Of, of course, purely for scientific reasons. Well, absolutely. Uh, it's yeah, Probably uh, it's on your pond in your property, and you're just checking out the overburden. Hmm. So, you know, uh, I'm, theoretically, when you're using this dredge, uh, what happens to the visibility? That's why you kick it. If, in a, if you're in a, let's say, a river, perhaps, or a place where you had current, you just aim the the exhaust downstream. Okay. If you're is not, it kinda, it gets cloudy really quick. Is it kind of operating, you know, like a underwater pressure washer? I'm trying to envision how this thing. How no, just it? the opposite. It's it's, uh, it's it's a venturi effect, just like it is from the surface. Only I'm doing it underwater. I'm using the airflow through it to make a venturi, and it sucks the water through and out the exhaust. Hmm. All right, I can see that. Yeah, and and you probably actually get. Uh, in the right type of material, uh, almost a multiplier effect. Yes, you do. And the, the problem, of course, is the deeper you go, the bigger the tank you need because you're going to exhaust the air a lot quicker. And it's nice if you can oh. uh, have variable pressure adjust because if you go deeper, you might want to boost the pressure because compensate for the depth. Yeah. Uh, but the the alternative would be to, to have a, uh, uh, like a, uh, a water pump on the surface, then you run a hose down. Oh, yeah, and then again, you got... And, and if you use air, you can also use hydraulics. That's actually even better. And you can put a return line on hydraulics. Oh, yes. Okay. But if you're cutting uh, pilings underwater, be damn careful. Now, Rodney in the chat was asking, uh, I presume he's talking about using the underwater, you know, using a scuba tank for, for a power supply. Got a question, what would you need to hook a tool to a regulator? Um, I, mean, I think he's asking what fittings you'd need to uh, you know, hook, hook into the scuba tank down there. Um, now, I've seen a lot of times with, with air hoses where you can uh, you know, hook in the, uh, the, the female end to the air hose simply with a, uh, you know, a fitting which slides in the air hose and you, and you clamp it down with a, a radiator clamp. 150 PSI, that, that would, I think that would be sufficient. Do you have a, a better suggestion there, Mac? No, those barbs do work. Uh, again, depends on how often you're going to be using it, what kind of tension you're going to have on the ends of it. It's never bad to put a safety wire or something like that around your coupling, so if it did come apart, you don't have a whip, which might beat you to yeah. death. Mm-hmm. And, and, or at and, least knock you comfortable, yeah. Yeah, and, and you know the key item for that kind of work is Rube Goldberg is your friend. You, you modify what you need to do it to make the job work. But again, yeah. keep the safety in mind because you're the guy down there operating it. Yeah. yeah. That gives me all sorts of ideas. Well, let's go yeah, ahead I, and go ahead. I know Darren's got some ideas about how thinking about it. We put together an air-powered underwater ROV here. Hmm, what can oh, we yeah. do with this? Oh, certainly. All sorts of those. Well, let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. Uh, first article up is we have South Ham 
Air Cadets get scuba diving fundraiser thanks. Scuba divers have thanked Air Cadets for helping them raise thousands of pounds for a hospital which treats military personnel. Members of the sub-action dive group based in Southern Leisure Center invited RAF Air Cadets into town to try Dive Day as a reward for their efforts in raising 600 pounds for the sub the Scrub Action Fisher House yearly charity swim event in November. The event raised 2,000 pounds for Fisher House, Royal Center for Defense Medicine, the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham, which has been described as a home away from home for military patients and their families. So congratulations, and hopefully they enjoyed their their excursion underwater. Uh, I'm not familiar. Go ahead. I was going to say that's $2,500 in the U.S., so that's not too shabby. Yeah, that two thousand pounds. Are are air cadets just kind of like how we have uh, sea cadets? It's a kind of a young person's, like an ROTC almost type of program. I don't know, but it would sound logical. But uh, I I really don't know on that one. Yeah, yeah. Okay, here it says RAF Air Cadets. That's Royal Air Force Air Cadets. So it must be something like that, like a a young group. But uh, well, congratulations. Good for them. And then we have historical dive sites are on the rise in North Carolina. Heritage tourism spreads all through Wilmington's historic areas, and soon tourism will make their way underwater. On Friday, a 220-foot Civil War blockade runner condor will be dedicated as the first North Carolina heritage dive site. The history of the ship is amazing. We did it for the history, said Greg Stanton, archaeological dives. Supervisor for the North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources. Condor launched in June 1849 out of Govan, Scotland, and left Glasgow two months later to pick up military uniforms in Cork, Ireland. At this time, Rose O'Neill Greenhow, a famous Confederate spy, was aboard the ship. She was returning to the United States and was concerned about being captured by the Union, according to the Underwater Archaeological Bureau Site Assessment. After trips to Bermuda, Nova Scotia, on September 24, 1849, Condor set sail for Wilmington. On October 1st, the ship ran aground the coast of Fort Fisher. Greenhow, against warnings from the captain pilot, demanded to be sent to shore in a small lifeboat. She drowned in the surf carrying gold meant for the Confederacy. She was given a full military funeral and, and buried in Oakdale Cemetery in Wilmington, according to the UAB site assessment. The site rests 742 yards off the coast of Fort Fisher, according to Stratton. The ship was originally 220 feet long, but 218 feet remain at the dive site, which rests in 25 feet of water. Stratton said it's shallow enough for people can even snorkel the site. Scuba divers can take charters from the Carolina Beach Inlet to Condor or kayak out there themselves. The site is perfect for beginner divers. It's really accessible. The site will be marked from May 1st to November 4th, uh, November 1st, with two 44-inch buoys changing the bow and stern. The buoys will be moved on November 1st after seasonal tourism winds down. Stratton said there are three reasons for creating the site. One is to educate, to further heritage tourism, and to teach divers stewardship. We want people to care about the sites. This is a chance for divers to see how the vessels were laid out and how high-tech they were, especially Condor. Stratton said the first of many heritage dive sites planned for North Carolina, ranging from Outer Banks to South Carolina. Cure Beach Mayor Emily Swearingen said the town is excited to host the first heritage dive site. 
The fact that we're the first to have the Heritage Dive Site is very exciting. The town is very proud of the historic sites at Fisher Fort or Fort Fisher. The dedication will feature Wilmington, Susie Hamilton, the North Carolina Secretary of Natural and Cultural Resources, will take place at 10.30 a.m. Friday at Battle Acre, 1610 Fort Fisher Boulevard, south of Cure Beach. I love that article, and the pictures of the boat ship are very nice. There is one item I'd like someone to have mentioned, though. Well, the, the one thing I see is that these dates seem all wrong. Well, what I'm concerned about is what happened to the gold? She lost the gold that's, in the surf. So where is it at, guys? That's what I'm wondering about when you're talking about something that's, you know, about a quarter mile offshore. Uh, that's a reasonable search area. You know, if they say that she was carrying the gold, perhaps the gold was on her person. Uh, what happened to that gold? Or, or, or how about, here's, here's maybe a more likely thing. Uh, they know she's got the gold. They throw her over the boat. <laughs> Keep the gold for themselves, and then you've got a good story. I know. Pete, that works for me. <laughs> but like, the, what I don't understand is uh, it was a 220-foot Civil War blockade run, runner. But it said it launched in 1894 out of Govan, Scotland. The Civil War would have been long over with by that. Yeah, yeah no like doubt. 1865. No. Yeah, and then after trips to Bermuda and Scotland on September 24th, 1894, set sail for Wilmington. I just think somebody fat-fingered or mistranscribed the numbers. Uh, let me see if we can figure something out here. I bet you there's another site that will have something if, in the comments. If that was a six instead of a nine, it would be correct, and that's very possible. Yeah. Well, I, know. 19, you know, I know there were a number there were a number of ships named Condor, so it would be pretty easy to uh, get, you know, bad, you know, information from one transposed onto another. Yeah, I read the Condor, and I kept thinking of somebody else's Condor. I know. Yeah, well, that that Condor that's in, uh, oh, that's up there in Saugatuck. It's built in 1870. So it's 1872, and lost. 1904, so it overlaps that, that date, but doesn't actually have that date as part of it. Yeah, but this is a side wheeler with mast or with uh, sails, so that's an interesting boat. It looks fast, too. Well, I've got the great big internet book of everything looking it up. Yeah, I'm looking it up as yeah. well, and I'm... I found... A Wikipedia article, but doesn't have any details on. It just has a list of the shipwrecks. Yeah, I'm seeing a Cape uh, Fear Civil Salt. War shipwrecks. It was added to the National uh, Registry of Historic Places. Oh, that's 1985. That's that. Let's see, Cape Fear. I think it's probably the same. Oh, crap, that's the same website. So, yeah, maybe somebody knows, but this is this, certainly the dates are wrong. But uh, Mac, I well, I think you probably got it right. Well, if you just change the date yeah, that you do the I'm search for. Here. I think I'm getting something here. Okay, dive on the Condor Civil War blockade runner shipwreck. Okay, this is in USA News. It's a PDF file. The site of the 
shipwreck of the Condor, a blockade runner, sunk in the Atlantic near Fort Fisher, North Carolina. This led to become a historic dive park. Goes to News Observer. Well, where's our article from? I, I, I found the article the with news. the original oh. called the 290 Foundation, and they transposed the 9 at the 6. Oh, okay. Well, and we've got a second article. I, I didn't realize they were related, but... Uh... Uh, and that was what they're talking about is easier to dive on the sunken Civil War shipwreck. So the very next article we had up was the same wreck, and that one's got the drawing. Did you see that one with the uh, uh, Greg Stratton looked like he had uh, uh, drew drew a map of it? Very nice. I am oh, sorry, Mac. I, I article which I came up with. Yeah. Um, let's see, do they, but they don't put the year on it. Like I said, I found the original for that and transpose, they transpose at nine, it's a six. Okay. Yeah. So I was trying to send you the link. Right. I was trying to send you the link, but it's lost on my screen someplace. (laughs) That's, that's how it goes. Uh, this next, the, the next article, we won't read it. Well, you can get a copy in our show notes, which. We'll thank Jim Billings for uh, putting up once again. Um, and this one goes a little bit into detail about some of the work that they were doing. Uh, like he says, last summer they trained 18 divers uh, to be underwater archaeologists teaching them measure, measure and record data about the, the wreck. They said the whole point of the Heritage Dive site is to work together with the diving community, create a sense of stewardship. Very cool. Oh, there's follow-up on the goal, too. Oh, do they say something? Oh, yeah. Uh, it says, uh, Greenhouse heavy clothing and gold coin sewn into her clothing drowned her. Therefore, when I recovered her, they recovered the uh, gold. They recovered the gold. <laughs> I thought there it might have out there. Yeah, Mac had already had his, uh, his car half-loaded by now. Well, I thought about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, so much time has passed on this. I mean, if 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 there was not a story as to where the gold ended, ended, someone would have certainly done a lot of looking for it by now. And you know, twenty five feet of water, yeah, and that's a big, it's a good size search area. We're talking about a quarter mile ashore, but that's very doable when it comes to looking for gold. That's all big. I just remember metal detector or even a magnetometer. Yeah. No, I just remember... Uh, it's metal. Yeah, it's I metal detector so. for yeah. sure. That's... But I, uh, I, I if don't you remember... Uh, problem, but... <laughs> Skype's just got I the perfect lag for us tonight. Yeah, every, everything... I don't uh, know a lot about it. But from what I from what I understand, when they're using magnetometer, they're looking for magnetic metals. Usually, there's like you know cannons and machinery and things when when you're looking for um, your gold. And I'm not sure magnetometer picks up gold or not. Maybe someone can tell us who knows more. I don't know. Well, Mac, you do a lot of stuff. I guess I should defer to your expertise on this stuff. Uh, I would I'd be using my metal detector myself, and there are certain varieties you can use. 
You just have to do a bigger coil to get down deeper. Uh, but that was that was making reminding me of uh, Doug Wilbanks talking about that when you know, he was he does searches in the Great Lakes. You know, a hundred years we hit the bottom. That's changed fifteen twenty feet. Down there, they can have thirty forty feet of sand build up easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we see that quite a bit with you know, looking looking for wrecks. Uh, you know, we go out to places where. You know, we have numbers on boats that haven't been built for, for a while, and you find the bottom has changed dramatically. Um, you know, there's the uh, oh, shipwreck right alongside the Holland Pier, the uh, Burlington, ran aground back in the 1920s. Some of it was scrapped out of there, but probably not all of it. And, yeah, where it ran aground, it used to be uh, like 35 feet of water, and now it's 14 feet of water. The um, what is it? The uh, middle one down in Michigan City, which oh, you're talking about the uh, uh, gosh, Muskeg- Muskegon? Muskegon? Yeah. No, not the Muskegon. Yeah. It, it's there's one, but there's one that's north of Michigan City. Um, the the, the uh, Wheeler. The wa- oh, Wheeler, Frank W. Yeah. Wheeler. Frank. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I was, I've never dove on that one. Well, you can't now. That's one of Gene Turner's finds. And, you know, I've, I've got numbers on it, but uh, that's supposed to be uh, 30 feet of water, which is now less than 10 feet of water. Yeah, it's sand all over that. Yeah, there's just been so much sand which has been pushed around, and, you know, we, we, we see all this shore erosion happening, and, you know, with that shore erosion, all that sand gets pulled, gets pulled off, you know, the dry land and put into the bottom lands. And... Stuff gets buried down there. You know, the uh, city of Green Bay, which is a real popular snorkel shipwreck in our area, that one is completely entombed right now in sand. Although I was out there this spring poking around, and it's getting a little bit deeper. Um, used to be when the wreck was exposed, the uh, you no, know, it started off in about three feet of water, and went out to about eight, ten feet of water. But then it got buried in the sand bluff. You can see a tremendous amount of riprap on shore where the residents had to try to, to save their homes. But all that sand ended up filling in that three to nine feet area to being all two feet deep. And out there the spring and where the city of Green Bay lies is still about two feet deep. But nearby, you've got a lot of six foot deep water. So I have hopes that that sand will get blown out of there in the, you know, within a year or so. We'll see. Time will tell. And then uh, we have another story. A hundred years ago, in a blind flog, U.S. Coast Guard, I said flog, U.S. Coast Guard ship was sailing around the coast of Southern California when it crashed into a passenger steamship. The USCGC McCulloch sank within 35 minutes and lingered on the ocean floor undisturbed by people for a century. On the 100th anniversary of the vessel, June 13, 1917, disappearance the Coast Guard announced Tuesday that it found the shipwreck not far from when it went down. The officials planned to leave it there. Strong currents and an abundance of sediment would make moving the delicate shipwreck too difficult, officials said in the detailing discovery in the San Francisco-based USCGC McCullough. They also paid tribute to its crews 
include two members who died in the line of duty, but not in the crash. Coast Guard Rear Admiral Todd, uh, let's see this, if I can, how bad I can mess it up. Suckle Zook called the ship a symbol of hard work and sacrifice of previous generations to serve and protect our nation, an important piece of history. The ship sank after hearing a foghorn nearby and then colliding with the SS Governor, a civilian steamship. The McCullough's crew was safely rescued and taken aboard the steamship. The National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration the Coast Guard discovered the wreck last fall during a routine survey. Researchers focused on the area of the shipwreck three miles or five kilometers off Point Conception, California, after noticing a flurry of fish, sunken ships offer a great place for fish to hide. The site is about 150 miles, 240 kilometers northwest of Los Angeles, commissioned in the late 1800s. The McCullough first set out to sea during the Spanish-American War as part of the Commodore George Dewey's squadron in the Battle of Manila Bay. Cutters based in San Francisco in the late 1800s and early 1900s represented American interests throughout the Pacific. They also played important roles in the development of the western U.S. After the war, the cutter patrolled the west coast and later was dispatched to, perfect, to protect fur seals in the islands off the coast of Alaska, where it was also serving as a floating courtroom in remote areas. The archaeological remains, including a 15-inch torpedo tube modified into the bow stern, and the top of a bronze 11-foot propeller blade are draped with an anemone 300 feet, 90 meters below the surface, officials say. A six-pound gun is still mounted in a platform at the starfish bow. Where are the photos? I don't know. It sounds like a cool dive to me with all the, <laughs> all the weaponry down there. Yeah, so, yeah 300 feet. Yeah, the that's within distance. Would you yeah. like a picture? We're talking about it being a, a skeleton drape with 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 uh, anemones. Uh, I'm not qualified for that depth, but if I was, that, although it sounds like it's, it's a long ways offshore, but pretty good haul getting out. out the, yeah, yeah the, the, that'd be a cool historical wreck, and it's it's not a war grave. Like no one died on it. it wasn't during wartime. So uh, I sent you a link to the picture of it, both underwater and on the surface. Okay. I'd say it's a cool guy. Yeah. Is that the NOAA link? That is correct. Okay. Oh, just that this one particular didn't. Oh, wow. Interesting boat, that isn't it? That would be a good doc. Yeah. Yeah. And the, uh, the the bottom shot there is not bad either. I always feel bad for the people in the radio land here who can't see what we're looking at at the same time. Oh, yeah, this is, this is well, great radio. We talk about photos. What's, what's, the, what's the link you have there? Uh, maybe you can describe the link a little bit in the, uh, to our listeners. Well, you, you could paste the link in the, sh- in the chat room there I see now. Yeah. Yeah, the, the bonus in the chat room, you get to see it. Uh, yeah, this is an abcnews.com technology wire story sunken military ship brought to surface. 
Yeah, I thought I was curious. Early in the article, they talked. They mentioned we have no plans to bring the to, to bring the ship up. Uh, that seems to be be talk amongst the non-divers is why don't you bring it up? Why don't you bring it up? Like it's just not practical to bring up something like this. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, um, the technology is there. Well, he, he, uh, yeah, but like you say, well, restoration I don't, I don't, or, or maintenance is ridiculous. You couldn't do it. Yeah. Well, well, even if you like, can get it, you know, Terrace uh, Lysenko has talked about bringing up that uh, submarine over there down there in southern Michigan. Um, you know, but, but that that's a you know well into the seven figure. Well, he's talking about it being a seven figure project. I wouldn't be surprised if it's an eight nine figure project to bring that baby up. I mean, it's just a uh, you know it takes an awful lot of manpower and equipment and to, you know. It, cash to bring up one of these things yeah. and then yeah when what comes up you got to conserve it um you know this being from salt water is going to have a tremendous amount of corrosion and things on it the, the weight of the, of the barnacles and the enemies on it and all is going to be astounding um i just kind of get a chuckle we see that that question asked a lot of times about shipwrecks is why don't you bring it up like yeah sure you <laughs> go go for it <laughs> you know? so, yeah. yeah like like in the movie raise the titanic yeah, well, you know, Clive Custler, you know, he's a pretty inventive fellow there, uh, and and that ship, and then the movie, which we, and and and, and the book, uh, you know, they, they they said it was a completely intact boat in the book and the movie, and bring up and they brought that up with balloons, uh, you know that, you know that's possible to have a completely intact boat, but when you're talking thing which is you know broken up in multiple pieces and structural damage and you know millions of tons of sea life attached to it uh you know really complicates the process yeah and and, 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 and even in the book. even in the book raised the titanic that project was like an entire world co- cooperation going on to, to bring up that to bring up that boat so um and we can't get the world to agree on anything these days. Well, if we can't get get them to agree on, you know, get her to ISIS, you know. So, um, let alone bringing up a, a big boat like this. Yeah, I look at these photos and you see the metal on this wreck, and you've got to believe that that's all very thin. Yeah, I don't. I you you'd have to you'd almost have to have something underneath it bring it up all in a piece, and you know, or or you encase it in foam or or something. Uh, it would just well, be a, a huge project. you got to look at it that, you know, apparently it was not structurally sound enough when it sank to uh, maintain buoyancy. What's it going to be like after all this time now with, uh, you know, probably several times its own weight attached in sea life? Uh, you know, then, you know, a lot of people look at these shipwrecks as being, being reefs and having an actual... A, a very beneficial effect to marine life. Um, would we want to, you know, damage the ecosystem like that? Why would we? Uh, there really just isn't, you know, a good reason to bring to bring these up, even if the, the money and the and the, and the you know the resources were there to do it. So these ships are best best left where they lie. You know. Um, yeah. If you want one on the surface, just uh, make make a new version from plans. 
Many, many well, of these shipwrecks, uh, the the designs for them are are well known, and could, they could be built if somebody was so motivated, and it'd probably cost you about a quarter of the the price of raising one, not including the uh, restoration. Didn't someone uh, build a smaller scale version of the Titanic not that long ago? I know right around the 100-year mark of the sinking, there was talk about an oriental firm um, building a smaller version of the Titanic. So I wonder what came of that. One of those hot topics back when you know, we were talking about the 100-year anniversary in 2012. Yeah, you're right. It was about 2000. Here's an article from February 26, 2013. Australian billionaire Clive Palmer says he's building a replicata, replica, replicata, uh, replica of the uh, Titanic, uh, designed for a full-scale recreation, displaying the blueprint of Titanic II at a press conference at an intrepid sea and air and space museum. Palmer announced the ship will be built in China, be carrying passengers in the third quarter of 2016. Palmer refused to divulge the cost of building the ship, said the Titanic was a ship of dreams. The Titanic II will be a ship where dreams come true. The Australian businessman who owns Australian Mining Company and other businesses says he received overwhelming response from prospective passengers who want to travel the Titanic II, predicted to be a real financial bonanza so successful that he will have to build a Titanic III. Titanic three. Yeah. Wow, I don't think he built the first one. I've, uh, all I find is this article. What was the guy's name? Uh, his name. Let me get back up to the top. Was uh, uh, Clive Palmer? Okay, he's not the only one. There's another gentleman, South African businessman Saul Goss, G A U S. And uh, he was also going to build one called the Titanic II. Uh, he abandoned his project in 2006. His estimated cost was over $500 million. Yeah, I suspect that, you know, these, these kind of projects are appealing and they sound really cool until you start looking at, at, at the dollar figures. And, you know, yeah. $500 million, that's not a drop in the bucket, in the bucket to anyone. Yeah, and the and the thing with it is that uh, you have to do it because you love it, not because you want to. You think it's really going to make money, because anybody who's going to invest money in something like this would rather do it in a real cruise ship. Yeah, because those are optimized yeah. to make money. Yeah. Well, actually, I'm looking at one now. It's called a Seven Star Project, under construction as of 2017. Uh, oh. This one is uh, says the first Titanic replica to actually commence construction was invested in by the Chinese firm Seven Star Energy and is being constructed by the Wengcheng Shipbuilding. Uh, they reported it in 2013, formally launched in 2014. Ship will be the same size as the original Titanic. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm a little bit literary of these Chinese shipbuilding firms, though. I mean, and you know, there's been so many, not necessarily Chinese, but there've been so many sketchy deals have come out of the Orient when it comes to shipping. Uh, I don't know, you know, uh, been different, uh, oh, 
you know, cruise companies that kind of come and gone. I know like the uh, SS American Star was supposed to going to get refurbished by with a Korean outfit. And, you know, that ended up being one of the most uh, eye-catching shipwrecks <laughs> as a result of their right. towing job. Uh, I don't know, they've had quite quite a few. You know, what, was, what about that? that whole two weeks ago we talked about the illegal war graves uh, salvagers being caught and that was an oriental outfit so those scrapping those boats you know um it seems that there's kind of a a different standard in the east when it comes to uh the, uh, the whole shipping industry so yeah. i'm a little bit leery of these stories so um yeah. well here, I'm, here's, I'm, a, I'm, here's a follow-up I've got a follow-up here, and this one is from December 2nd, 2016, and it says construction of the first full-size replica of the Titanic has begun in China. This according to state media reported on Thursday, uh, and expected to enjoy smoother sailing as a lakeside tourist draw of its namesake. The 269-meter-long, 28-meter-wide ship will be docked permanently on a reservoir in in a rural area province, according to the news agency. It'll feature an interior reproducing some of the grandeur of the original ballroom theater, swimming pool, and first-class cabins with addition of Wi-Fi. Uh, <laughs> the Wang Chung Shipbuilding Industry Group Deputy General Manager uh, has confirmed. Uh, and they're basing it on the, the, the Clive Palmer attempt. Clive was actually going to reproduce a sailing vessel uh, that would actually move, but this is just this is basically a floating Hotel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I no. didn't. I didn't really realize this, or maybe I did. But they said that uh, in the 1997 movie, director James Cameron had a 90% scale replica built for filming purposes. I don't think that was I, a the whole unit sections. I think were built. Yeah. company first announced plans for the project in 2014. Uh, One billion won, which is about 202 million Australian. Hmm. Well, there's certainly a lot of money in that, in that part of the world to finance these kind of projects. Yeah. Yeah. What they're doing this is they're doing it purely for domestic tourism, uh, trying to keep the citizens at home happy seeing things. Well, you know, that it does make sense. Right. You know, we do see an awful lot of uh, tourists coming here from that part of the world. You know, keep them home and keep that dollar home. That's just a lot. That's a lot of coin. But yeah, I know. Well, they, they also, wanna... you, you you get you get to a different market because most of the the Chinese who are coming here for tourism are, are pretty well off. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they got more money than I do, but uh, the majority of your local Chinese citizens don't have that. So they're looking for kind of like how we were in the, you know the early 1900s, uh, you know, day trips from their cities. Mm-hmm. This is our uh, equipment of, of uh, an amusement park for the, for the blue-collar folks. So, Yeah. I can see that. Let's see. Uh, and I think we've got an article on the SS Mendai, 
World War I shipwreck bell recovered in Swanage. The bell of the ship involved in one of Britain's worst offshore disasters has apparently been found in a plastic bag left anonymously for a BBC reporter. It bears the name of the SS Mendai, which sank off the island right during World War I, killing more than 600 black South African laborers. The bell is thought to have been stripped from the wreck by divers. Maritime archaeologist John Gribble, who surveyed the ship, said the bell was probably genuine. BBC reporter Steve Humphrey said the anonymous donor phoned him on Wednesday after seeing recent coverage of the Mendai must be centenary. The Mr. Humphrey arranged to arrive in Swanage Pier in the early hours to find the bell in a plastic bag. A note in the bag read, "If I handed it in myself, I might it might not go to the rightful place." This needs to be sorted out before I pass away, as it could get lost. wonder why he thought that he couldn't do it. I was wondering if maybe he thought he might not go to the right place. The well, maybe he's thinking that, you know, I think he's thinking that if it goes to the, the, uh, the writer, then it should get enough attention that it should go to the right place, as opposed to possibly some corrupt deal ended up in some again in someone's collection that's my guess uh, my thoughts I, I i go for that uh, the bell's never been reported found but given the extent to which the site was stripped of non-ferrous metals in the past i'd be very surprised if the bell was still on the wreck the bell looks right it's the right sort of size for a bell of that period the ss mendai sank in 21st february 1917 1917 when accidentally rammed in thick fog, the Royal Mail packet ship SS Dario, a government inquiry said the Dario failed to lower lifeboats, leaving 646 sailors to drown. Most of the wow. dead were family members of South African Native Labor Corps heading to France to do manual labor on the Western Front. Wow. Do the boat. That is you rough. the boat and you don't even rescue the people in the water. 646 sailors. I mean, that sounds like a major violation of maritime law. I mean, I know when a vessel is stricken, anyone able is required to lend lend assistance. It's, it's not it's not optional. And the fact that they chose now this is wartime, so there's probably different laws in effect during wartime. Or I know the passenger vessel has loopholes in that as well because the captain has to look out for his passengers first. But, wow, 646 left in the water wouldn't lower lifeboats. Those were not all sailors. Those were laborers, weren't they? Yes. More than 800 members of the South African Native Labor Corps were on board. So, uh, more than 800. And... 646 perished. So well over 70%. It looks like this. It seems is... like you could have done something. Yeah, I don't see. It, which, which, yeah. It's rough. Well, it sounds well, like look this at the is bell. a pretty, pretty racially charged issue, too, if you look at the article a little but more thorough between Mandela and the Queen of England there. So, wow. 
Yeah, if you look at the bell, it's it's got the name etched in the bell. So I don't know why anybody would doubt that that was the bell. I don't think there was much of a of a desire to to fabricate a fake bell. Interesting crack uh, in it too. I you know I wondering this the uh, donator's remark about it not going to the right place. Um. I wonder if this is an an episode in history which has uh, people tried to bury and forget about because it sounds like the oh. South Africans were there. There were um, com- commemorations of this shipwreck which the uh, government tried to discourage. And yeah, I, I'm going to say this is a wreck which uh, those in power have tried to uh, make forgotten, and that would be yeah. why. Well, if you look. Yeah. Yeah, because it says the Darius captain who was blamed for the tragedy by the Board of Trade was handed a one-year suspension of his master's certificate. The story became a symbol of racial injustice in South Africa where successive white-led governments discouraged annual Mendai Day celebrations. So they were having annual celebrations since that tragedy in 1917 and people did not forget in 1995, the queen and Nelson Mandela unveiled a memorial to the Mendai victims in Soweto uh, down there in South Africa. The government receiver of the wreck said the bell would probably be given to a museum while decision was made about its future. South African government, which is attempting to recover Mendai artifacts has been approached for comment. Uh, the timeline is at uh, February 17th, 1917, sinks after the Royal Mail packet boat SS Dario plows into her at full speed in thick fog. In 1974, divers identify the wreck 11 nautical miles south of St. Catherine's Point, Isle of Wight. 1995, Nelson Mandela and Queen Elizabeth unveil the memorial in Soweto. 2003, the Mandai medals introduced to South Africa's highest honor for bravery. 2007 to 2008, two surveys carried out by the English Heritage. 2009, Minister of Defense designates the wreck as a protected war grave, making it an offense to remove items. If you of course, go as I and, said before, it's been salvaged. Yeah, there's a magazine called The New African. Uh, mm-hmm. If you look at the 100-year anniversary issue, which is here it's March 21st, 2017, and I put the link in the site there. Gives you a little different perspective from the South African viewpoint. So, I mean, not not to incite racial tensions, but from this whole thing, it almost appears that these laborers were just a resource that was being taken from South Africa just to uh, fill a need that they had for for work. Yeah, and I'm sure they've drawn all kinds of parallels to labor being taken from there, you know, historically as well. That's yeah, but this this is really a, a very dark story. This is uh, wow. Yeah, the article, like I said, the link I sent is quite interesting, and has a different bent to it than you might get from other papers. 
I mean, put this yeah. in perspective, you know, you're talking those kind of casualties, you're looking at r- roughly half of Titanic right there. And this is a completely, in our part of the world, an unheard of story. I'm sure it's quite well known in South Africa, but it's nothing we've ever heard of. I've never heard of this story before, sad to say. I'm going to have to read about it more now. And then we do have some potentially cool scuba product. I had an email from the CEO or president of this company. They had done a Kickstarter, and the product is called uh, Paralens, P-A-R-A-L-E-N-Z. And if you go to their website, www.paralens.com forward slash USA forward slash, it will get you to the English language version of the site. Uh, and I'd love to try one out. I mean, it's, uh, he, he sent something cause I thought it would be interesting and I looked at it and I, and it's got some interesting parts to it. Uh, They compare themselves directly to GoPro, and they do side-by-sides. One thing that this this camera is doing, it looks a little bit like a small flashlight. Uh, If you remember that that dive camera that Bob Sweeney had, it's similar to that one in appearance. Uh, And they say it's built for divers by divers, but I I think most products, at least most well-designed underwater products, tend to be uh, have some sort of dive pedigree to them. Um, well, diving does does attract a lot of engineers. I mean, that's that's what Bob does, and <laughs> we know we know quite oh, yeah. a, quite a few of them who do. So, yeah, yeah, in, in, engineers, computer guys. Uh, I, I think it just it, it's a nice meld of everything, and you just can't beat diving. Um, but the specs are: it's waterproof to 200 meters or 656 feet. Uh, video resolution is four at 4K is 30 frames per second. Uh, 1080p you get wow. 100 frames per second. 720p you get 240 frames per second. Uh, capable of All taking right. eight megapixel still image. Uh, what I thought was interesting is that they're doing something, and I, I don't, I don't know if it really works well uh, for somebody if we would prefer just having the raw video, but they are color correcting based on depth. And they say it can be turned on or off. So what it's doing is it's it, they must have some sort of table, and it's probably got a bias to crystal clear uh, <laughs> water in the Caribbean. But as it goes down, it it automatically compensates for the uh, the color spectrum being filtered out of the water. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're saying you're going to get about two hours of recording time. Uh, it has an app. Uh, lens distortion is about 140 degrees, with lens distortion being corrected, about 5.6 yep. ounces. Looks interesting. The price for the camera is $600. The third-person viewer identified on one of the scopes yep. is 79 bucks. Lens kits 39, and the accessory kit, which looks to be mounting, is 19. Yeah, yeah, but for that a camera third person kid, I... going, for a camera capable of going 700 feet, um, that's a deal. That is a steal right there. Yeah, if I'm if I'm going 700 feet, I'm going to get one. 
<laughs> yeah, but, but you know, in, in the in the past, when you're looking going those kind of depths, you're looking at you know buying buying a Gates or something there, you know, and then you're you know you're well into four figures and something here that's you know comfortably in three figures. Uh, yeah. Well, if you looked at the the website, either you get to to uh, look at it, and they say that they have the one section that says no more color filters, and then they have the slider where you can slide back and forth between the the color corrected. Yeah, but you know, I don't know color filters. I I, I kind of like the the opinion of some of the of you know some of the expert photographers. We you know, we, we talk about time to time, but it seems the movement's kind of getting away from using filters. Because uh, yeah, what what you can do with post processing in your software, you know, beats the heck out of any any filter you're going to find. Plus, yeah, well, well, and I think that's what they're doing here. I don't think they're putting a filter on it. I think that they're using uh, software uh, built in the device to do this correction. Or it's, if it's not directly in the device, it's in whatever their tool is to uh, pull the images off. Well, Which I, I could see if you don't have Photoshop, and uh, this could be attractive. Well, but the, the fact that you can turn it on, turn it off, um, tells me that they're you know they're trying to just appeal to a broader base because there are a lot of folks out there who frankly just don't want to learn how to use the software, who do, who do want to use the filters, just because it's you know easier to do. The problem with that is that as, as we've seen from you know experience taking pictures down there is that your number one hurdle is getting enough light into the lens. And when you put a filter in, well, right there, you're subtracting some light. Maybe it's some light you don't want. Maybe it is. But the fact is that now the light is gone and nothing you can do about it. Whereas you start, anything you do with a filter, you can do in your post-processing and you can, and, and then you have a choice. So, Right. I did find one other interesting awesome. factor about it. It's uh mm-hmm. This is one you can, like to say, keep your gloves on. The buttons on the camera are magnetic with vibration feedback, and they were designed that way so you can use them with neoprene gloves. Ooh, that's now that that's a very nice feature because with the GoPro with my gloves on, I can't always turn the camera on because of the compression of the buttons and the compression of my fingers. Yes, this would be very nice, and the vibration would give you positive feedback. I like the third person uh, feature where it will what it almost looks like a little ROV, so it's tethered to you and then has enough flotation that as you're moving, it stays behind you and gets you in the shot. Uh, yeah, I, I'd love to try one out. I'm a little bit above my price range at this point with everything else on my my wish list, but uh, cool nonetheless. Yeah, very, uh, very it's cool. got a it's it's doing a dive log of your dives, keeping track of uh, depth and and uh, temperature, mm-hmm. uh, and, that, and that can be overlaid on your video. So if you're doing something that comes with a uh, ability to mount right to your mask, yeah, if it's if it's that small, I could see you doing that. You know, uh, it. it from speaking from experience, it's kind of a challenge to, to shoot quality video with something attached to your mask. But still, it's uh, at least what you see, they see. So, yeah, 
Uh, and I did click, and I think you might be able to do it. If you go click on news on this website, you can see where um, they've started shipping. It was originally a Kickstarter project, and uh, the owner of the company had emailed me saying that they're now available in the U.S., that they've uh, met their their Kickstarter obligation. Uh, the one thing that hasn't happened is it hasn't made it through the uh, – I think it's the FCC certification yet. So they haven't started assembling the uh, uh, USS, the, the USS, the US uh, version yet. Okay. And it, and it was supposed to be, it says waiting on FCC approval. We need FCC approval before we can ship the cameras. And this was four days ago. Is a test to ensure no harmful frequencies are emitted from the camera. We submitted the cameras for testing to Institute a long time ago and was told certificate certificate be ready before june they then moved the deadline to the 9th of june and now again the 16th of june the delay is not a problem with the camera the testing company is a huge corporation and despite sending them a lot of emails and calling them we cannot get them to do it faster they're busy and being a small client leaves us with very little leverage we just go ahead and start the final assembly but the test calls for any change in the camera we'd have to uh bend the production we must have approval before we can move on Sorry to keep you waiting. I will update as soon as I get word word about the test. This is Michael Trost. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you know, I can tell you that uh, once these things hit the, hit the market and are you know available to those outside the Kickstarter program, these are gonna these are gonna sell. Uh, you know, I, I I've seen the talk about these things, and I thought if one of those pipe dreams just wasn't gonna happen for that kind of money, but you know, to, to get. You know, they said it's a 140-degree uh, wide angle on it. So it's everything a GoPro is plus, you know, a, a few more options, a little more user-friendly even perhaps, and has uh, three, three times the depth capability so or more. Uh, I'm not sure if his GoPro is rated for 140 or, or 200. I'm not sure, but uh, this is this is awesome. I, I'm, I'm going to have one within six months, I can tell you that. So. <laughs> well, he's good. He sent it. Uh, Does that have Wi-Fi capability like the GoPro? Um, I didn't see that in the specs, but I can ask him. He said if we had any questions, we give him a call. Well, we can ask him. I can find out if it's got Wi-Fi. Well, I mean that that can be a nice feature if you're a techie. Well, it sounds like you're on good terms with this guy. Here, maybe we could uh, get a test unit in here to evaluate for for the show. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I was I, I was looking at it. and I'm thinking, how come we weren't on the short list? Because they they have all these 250 divers who've been uh, testing it already. And I was thinking, hey, what about us? But mm-hmm. oh well, we'll, I, we'll get I enough grief. I wonder how many of them are you know qualified to to go to that kind of depth though. I mean. Uh, there's not there's very few folks who who, who will go to uh, you know, 700 feet. Very few. Uh, but yeah, just the fact that this is something which you can take bowls sport depth and you're not at all concerned about about it flooding. Uh, it's a real boon. So yeah. yeah. Put, put put me down for one. I can find an 800 foot line and I can turn a lower it over the boat until it gets down that deep. <laughs> You're going to depth test it. Yeah. So here they had, uh, in the beginning of June, they said the web shop is now officially open. First come, first serve, 1,250 units. 
in the June production and not many left. Yeah, they're, they're going to sell fast. These things will sell fast. For that kind of money, that kind of depth, for all the features of a GoPro and then some, maybe, maybe not Wi-Fi, but uh, yeah. If, if I wasn't buying so many toys right now, I, I, it'd be on my short list. As of right now, it's on the long list. So. Right, right, right after, right well, we after, wish. Right after, I buy a side scan. Yeah. So. <laughs> Another side scan. So. Well, I just visited their Facebook page, and it looks like they get quite a bit of traffic there. So. Uh, speaking of that, the the and we've we've by the way finished scuba in the news, but the scuba obsessed we've. We have surpassed 500 likes on our Facebook page. So, so thank you everybody for doing that. Uh, again, we don't do a whole lot on Facebook, but we do post some. We had a, a couple posts this week that, through sharing and social media, got over 3,000 views. So, uh, appreciate that activity. Uh, and maybe let me let me take a look at one of those articles. That might have been uh, something we should have covered here. Sometimes forget to go back on that. That was that was a few days. That was days ago. That's old old news. I have been off of Facebook so much in the last three or four months. It's like, you know, there is life without Facebook. Oh yeah. Well, and I'm I'm all I'm barely on there. It's uh, I, I get in trouble with Facebook because they they start give especially if you're a you got any sort of business or groups on there. If you're not responding within a couple of minutes, they try to shame you into uh, uh, spending more time on Facebook. Yeah, we have 501 likes as of the recording of this podcast. So we are, we, we are in our eighth season. Uh, we're in the process of moving over uh, the podcast from one audio host to another. Uh, I've been working on, I, I did initial tests uh, several months ago and finally uh, wrote the check today and started doing the move in mass. So it takes a little bit of time to do 330 episodes. So within the next week, we should have all those copied over. So keep an eye out for that. Awesome. Let's see. Uh, in, anybody get any diving in this last week? As I said earlier, this has been a dry week for me, but I'm sure Kevin must have got wet. I got got a few in. Um, no, uh, a friend of mine and her son just recently were certified, and. I, Told them I'd get them on a wreck as soon as they were, and we had plans for the for the Rockaway out of South Haven. Unfortunately, Mother Nature had other plans for us. Um, I figured I don't know, brand new wreck divers taking them out in five footers. Nah, not a good not a good way to break them in. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> we opted for the uh, Diamond Lake wreck, also known of as the South Bend. It was a a, a ferry it used to run back and forth between the island out there and Diamond Lake. Uh, 60 footer and 
we were treated to some magnificent visibility down there. Um, now I've got probably, I don't know, six or eight dives on this wreck. And I've never had better than five foot biz down there. Well, Mac and I had one. At, we, we, we did a night dive. I think we had about 10 foot biz that night. Maybe better than that. It's hard, hard to tell in the dark. But we had a solid 20 foot biz on the south bend down there. And it's only in 38 feet of water. Um, it was awesome. I mean, you come up on a section and you see the entire section there in front of you. You know, it really put a lot of into perspective all the work that uh, Zoltan and others did putting this, you know, kind of reconstructing this wreck. Um, really cool. Really cool. I know Tyler, when he got up to uh, the communications booth, he claims he saw some huge pike on it. Uh, he, he saw some huge fish, but they, they kind of moved off before he got, was able to identify them. This was his, uh, his third dive um, outside open water. <laughs> so this is a brand new diver. Uh, little Rhonda you know, spent a fair amount of time checking out the hull sections. Uh, had my camera down there, took lots of pictures. Um, nice thing about it, biggest problem I had with the pictures on this dive was usually you, you know, you pop a bunch of pictures and maybe one out of five is presentable, but I only had a couple pictures which were not presentable. I mean, this was a really nice dive. So. And people can see those very nice pictures if they go to the club website. Yeah, I, I shared them at the club website. They're on my Facebook. I have an album entitled uh, South Bend. And I also shared them on the uh, the Diamond Lake homeowners website. And from there, they got shared all over the place. They got they were shared to Klinger Lakes and different lakes around. And um, I, don't, I, I lost track of the shares. But, yeah, I think uh, MSRA actually had a share on that one, too. Do they really? Yeah, okay. I'm quite sure I noticed that. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I know that they, they definitely got around. And you know the, the pictures came out well. Oh, and by the way, those pictures are shot with the uh, GoPro Hero Silver using no filter. Uh, there's a fair amount of uh, post-processing editing going on in those. I, I tend to uh, bump up the contrast, knock down the green, and... Uh, I will adjust the light individually for each individual photo, depending upon how it looks. But, you know, there's there's some editing on, in those photos, but you just can't beat that visibility we, we had down there. You know, we, you can see that, you know, the individual sections, the entire section there. It, it, it really put it in perspective, too. It was really nice. <clears throat> but we were hoping to have a repeat of the visibility uh, in Reeds Lake on Tuesday. Reeds Lake's up by Grand Rapids and has a, a really cool intact 100-foot steamboat in there. And we, we, we've gone a long stretch here in this part of the state without any you know measurable rainfall. And that really enhances the, the visibility in the inland waters. And we were hoping for some good viz on the Hazel A in Reeds Lake. But, you know, Reed's Lake had other ideas. We got up there, and the visibility was kind of disappointing. Uh, surprising, though, because on the surface, we could see the, the uh, anchor line going down almost 20 feet. So we were really, really pumped on the surface when we could see that great of vis up there. But once you got down to 20 feet, you kind of dropped into a cloud, and 
the, the cloud started kind of opening up a little bit once we got to the wreck. But on the wreck, we never had better than eight-foot vis, and most of it was around five-foot visibility. Um, I don't know, I was kind of concerned because this this was, you know, Rhonda is still in single digits for her, her total number of dives. And uh, this is a, like a 45, 50-foot dive, which is well within, you know, she, she, she's, she's now a certified, so she's actually certified for 130, not ready for it, but she's certified for it. But, you know, we, we know from experience that going into poor visibility as a new diver can be a little bit unnerving. And I was a little concerned for her, but she handled it like a trooper. You know, uh, I ended up making a couple trips up and down the line for, you know, anger setting purposes and things. So I was up, you know, in the cold a little more than she was. And I got pretty, I got pretty chilled down there and I ended up calling the dive kind of short thinking that she wasn't really going to enjoy anyway with all with the poor visibility, but she was kind of, just kind of bummed. She's like, why, why, why'd you wimp out? <laughs> I wanted to see more. So, uh, you know, she, you know, we got, we got to see the stern section pretty well and the boiler section pretty well, did not get as far as the bow. Um, on, on all, we had about 20 minutes of bottom time down there. You know, it, it was a really cool dive. It was a pretty cool dive for the poor visibility, what, what it was. Um, just said, you know, you always hope for better. So. Oh, very cool. Making me jealous for, uh, well, everybody getting out like, there. Sounds like the, the, Club did a Thirsty Thursday dive tonight. Has anyone heard? I, I thought it looked like Ted and John were going out to that. They're going to do a yeah. There's a, a post just yeah. A post just got put out. I uh, for some reason Facebook is is being extremely picky on the Mud Club site about approvals. But uh, Ted posted a photo. Paw Paw Lake. Two divers got in. Two got out. John got three balls. I got two. Viz was about 15 feet. Temp was warm. Missed everyone. Hmm. And then John commented, good times. Good. Yeah. Yeah. 15-foot visit is pretty good out there, especially with all that rain we just had. So, yeah. Well, did it rain real heavy? I I mean, we got rain here. It was steady, but um, we needed it. Oh, it was like a torrential, it's like a monsoon here for about 20 minutes. I'm over in Bangor area, and I've heard the stories coming out of South Haven about it being, you know, pretty scary stuff coming ashore over there. Um, people talking about 75-mile-an-hour winds and all kinds of nasty stuff, but it was very short-lived. Uh, lots of trees down in this area. My power didn't go out, but a lot of my friends did out here. So it was a really intense short storm with a lot of rain. I want to say we got – I know it collapsed my boat cover, and there were gallons and gallons and gallons in that boat cover. <laughs> so um, I'm sure I had 20 gallons of water trapped in that boat cover. I'm sure I did. So I'm a nineteen foot boat. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I did I because yeah, I kept hearing we're gonna get rain, we're gonna get rain, we're gonna get rain, and it never came. And then finally we had some starting late yesterday. Uh yeah, and it it was pretty steady for some time, but uh I'm, I'm looking at my lawn today. It's still sections of it are, are brown. Uh, well, it'll take we a probably, while. We need. Yeah, we're going to need this about every you know once every three or four days for a while uh, well, to keep things up. We're, we're starting to get into that warm time of the year. 
Well, we just haven't had any any you know, noticeable rainfall. I mean, there's been a, a little bit of a, a drop here and there, but you know, nothing we had last night. But that, you know, because so many of our lakes around here have an inflow and an outflow. And when we get, you know, a fair amount of rain, it brings a lot of dirt in the lake, which, you know, hurts our visibility. Um, but, yeah, if you could get out diving in the last week in this area, uh, that's pretty good visibility as a reward. So you got any plans for this weekend to get any diving in? Well, this is uh, Father's Day weekend, and my son was contacting me wondering what I wanted to do with anything with him on Sunday. I'm like, yeah, let's go diving. Thing is, he, he's he's not a diver yet. <laughs> um, but no, we're we're gonna go uh, up to the Nova Dock and go snorkeling on that. That's uh, pretty cool storm it's one of the night wreck of storm of 1940 wrecks you can actually see it in google earth pretty clearly it's about six miles south out of pentwater we're going to snorkel that one on sunday and i'm thinking i might also dive the end minch um i'm not 100 percent sure about that but i'm thinking i will i've not dove the stern section i've done i've dove the bow section twice so i'm thinking i'm probably gonna do a dive on the on the stern of the end minch so that's my plan. How about, how about you, Mac? You got any plans coming up? Um, still sort of tied around the house for a bit. Okay. But, uh, I'm going to try to get some river time in in the near future. Okay. I've got a graduation going on this weekend. My daughter, who has successfully graduated from high school, Yay. Uh, we have her graduation party uh, going on Saturday. And... Um, then next weekend, I've got something scheduled up already. And I'm to that point where yeah, I, I think I probably gonna need some advice of how I get back diving. I think this is my longest dry spell since last year. Uh, I'm, I'm not moving in the, in the right direction. I need to uh, follow my own advice and put some stuff in the calendar. But now it's going to take me a while to get everything back together. Uh, I had talked about my dive vehicle had died. So now I've got a new truck and I don't, I, it's, I've got to figure out how to get everything back together for diving. So I've got an idea of a whole bunch of projects for, you know, how to organize my gear in a truck. But yeah, I feel like I'm crawling out of a hole. Well, at least you're doing it in June. I mean, you still got a lot of dive season ahead of you, so let's get you out there. Yeah, my my plan is to dive all year round. I'm I'm kind of worried. Uh, I'm gonna first time I'm gonna get in the water. It's gonna be a hundred degrees. Gonna roast <laughs> like a lobster in a dry suit. Well, you still got your wetsuit, don't you? <laughs> Have you seen my wetsuit? Well. I don't. I, I don't use my dry suit when it's like this. You know. I mean, actually, both both dives I did this week were in my, in my wetsuit. Heck, when I when I dove the, I made the mistake when I was uh, on the South Bend there in Diamond Lake. I didn't I didn't wear a hood, and man, ice cream headache. That was not a good idea. It was cold down there, but it worked. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I mean, this time of year, 
dry suit is optional, depending on what you're doing. Yeah. So. What were you going to say, Mac? Oh, I'm, about nothing. My just, I, no, I'm not going to say anything. I'm, if it's 100 degrees, you don't need a wetsuit. Just get in that Speedo <laughs> and go. True. This is true. Well, Speedo, there's an image. I didn't, I didn't need that. Did, did not need that image there. So. Yeah, this, this, the Speedo's got more coverage than my wetsuit, so <laughs> that's how bad my wetsuit has gotten. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I, when I have, I take a, a, a new divers out, you know, I talk to a lot of my buddies about uh, us out diving, you know, and I tell them, hey, you know, it's, Come on, diving with us, but I'm warning you, we're we're a, we're a bunch of fat guys in wetsuits, and once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. You kind of got to think it's kind of like Men in Tights, but more more tragedy <laughs> than comedy, you know. So, yeah, I, I had that problem, but my, my wetsuit kind of shrunk over the winter. I had that problem too. So, yeah, yeah. That, that, well, that's the other part that I, I'm I'm worried about. I've been watching the scales, and I I was doing good all the way till the beginning of. Uh, yeah, I, I yeah through the holidays I hadn't gained as much as I expected. And then I got the cold or a flu, and it lost five pounds more than what I gained. So I felt like I was ahead, and I was doing pretty well all the way until the beginning of this season for uh, graduation and graduation parties. And that is sneaky stuff. You don't feel like you've eaten a lot, but that scale says otherwise. Mm. So. Uh, luckily, I don't need a whole lot of undergarments under the dry suit, so I think I, could, I think it will still zip. Well, I, I'd say I'd say go wet, man. I mean, I, I know your wetsuit's got a few miles on it there, but uh, you know, it's really nice to have just an easy dive. You know, yeah, I I've, I've been using my rebreather. You know, I, I did a co- I've done a couple hours out to uh, uh, Lake 16 training on the thing recently, but it is nice once in a while just to put on a wetsuit put on uh, one of my steel 72s, just a tr- traditional BCD, and jump in the water. And it's nice to have a nice, easy dive. It only takes, you know, 15 minutes of preparation, you know, 15 minutes of putting away the gear when I get home. Um, I really value those nice, easy, squeezy dives. So wetsuit what diving, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I've been talking to some people about, you know, I, I don't know, I got, you know, some, you know, there's a bunch of kids that play I say kids. They're a bunch of 20, 20-somethings out of Minnesota. For some reason, we're picking my brain about diving on Facebook. And they're all wanting to know about dry suits and, you know, double tanks and everything. And I'm just like, no, guys, I mean, you want to go dive in wetsuits, single tanks, keep it simple, you know. I mean, have a good time with it, you know. <laughs> I mean, you want to go tech, that's down the road. But right now, just keep it simple. Yeah. I'd like to thank WRVO Radio for putting us on the air one more year. If you like hunting, fishing, and the great outdoors, you'll love WRVO Radio. You want to find out how to listen, go to our website, www.scubobsess.com. Go down to the footer in the bottom, and we have links to their website and how to listen. Uh, also, like to thank our Patreon supporters, specifically our Dive Nitrox, which is currently Vanessa Homiak. Uh, thank you once again for supporting the show, especially as long as you have. You're the, you're the first one and the last one currently. Uh, can use some more supporters as we improve the program and you know these things, uh, all these little costs add up. And 
certainly appreciate it. Um, let's see. Uh, do you have a, a, a wreck of the week? Yes, I do. Um, tonight I'm going to feature the uh, Samuel Mather. Uh, this is a really cool schooner. Uh, it's a little deep. I think we're looking at around uh, what we got for depth on this guy here. It's a lot of sport depth. But when you look at the really intact wrecks, you are going to go a little bit deeper than most. Uh, yeah, 140 to 170 feet. And I'm going to pull this information off uh, Michigan, michiganpreserves.org. Also a little bit off the uh, Wikipedia article here, too. But let me see. I'm a little bit discombobulated as I pull this together here. But, yeah, I can say I'm looking at michiganpreserves.org. Uh, where is the article on the Mather? Oh. They don't actually feature the Mather. Oh, I'm going straight to Wikipedia then. Okay. Uh, the Mather had a series of mishaps and changes in ownerships, and she was launched in Cleveland on April 7th of 1887. First owners, John Moore. Don, okay, let me let me get to the to the wreck on this thing here because I know you guys have been listening to us for a long time tonight. Let me give you to the meat and potatoes here. All right, final voyage. On 22nd November 1891, 2 a.m., the wooden Mather was downbound from Duluth, Minnesota for Buffalo, New York with a load of 58,000 bushels of wheat when she was rammed in the starboard side near the aft hatch by the steel package freighter Brazil in a thick, heavy fog in Whitefish Bay. Eight miles North of Point Iroquois, the collision made an 11-foot hole on the starboard side. There was no loss of life from a crew of 20. During the 25 minutes that it took for her to sink, her crew were able to put away, pull away with their lifeboats, but they lost all the personal possessions. The crew was picked up by the Brazil, and they were, they were taken later transferred to the steamer Parks Foster for transport to Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. The Brazil proceeded to Duluth with their load of coal and was found to have have three frames and a, and a stringer broken from the collision. The matter was valued at fifty thousand dollars with a with a weak cargo, and was a total loss estimated in excess of two hundred twenty-six thousand dollars. Now, like I said, this is a little bit outside of sport depth here, although the mass does reach up to within ninety feet of the surface. Uh, this is a one that has an intact crow's nest, has mass still standing. Um, if you look it up online, there are a lot of cool pictures by Bob Underhill. If you Google Samuel Mather, you'll come up with quite a bit of information on it here. Um, and this is a wooden schooner with mass still standing, just barely within sport depth. Like I said, I don't think you're going to reach the deck when, in sport depth and all that, but you're going to still be able to uh, you know, see the wreck within sport depth here in the Great Lakes. And there's nowhere else in the world you're going to see these kind of wrecks in sport depth. So apologize for being a little bit uh, slipshod in my presentation there, but that is the Samuel Mather sunk in 1887. There you have it. Well, built in 1887. <laughs> there we go. Excellent. Nice job. Uh, Mac, do you have uh, anything you want to cover? Well, I always like to go around looking at the safety aspects, what you find on Tacuba Board and other places. There's a site, was called uh, thoughts.com, and one of the comments it was, was, is scuba diving safe? And it's uh, 
It's a rather large article, but it came down to three items I looked at. So the top three root causes leading to diver fatalities, and they were using Dan Fatality Workshop Report numbers, are, and again, nothing we don't already know, but sometimes we ignore. Number one was pre-existing disease or pathology in the diver, poor buoyancy control, and you see that everywhere. Uh, number three is rapid ascent or violent water movement. And their comments here were all three are completely avoidable. And in fact, if a diver respects the safe diving practices taught during scuba diving training, none of the factors should be a problem. And they say, for example, for beginning diver training, prospective uh, scuba divers are given a scuba diving medical questionnaire, which if answered truthfully, should bring up any medical problems or concerns that could predispose a diver to injury, death, lung disease, or heart issues. It says, of course, some divers do lie on these medical release forms and ignore the warnings not to dive with contradicted type conditions. Furthermore, a diver may develop a medical condition that is contrary to diving after certifications. So it says people really need to review the medical questionnaire periodically, take it seriously, even after you become a certified diver. The second aspect they talked about was poor buoyancy control, still an issue with many divers, and it talked about who is to blame for this lack of control. Is it the diver or is it the instructors who certified them saying they were competent? And it doesn't give the experience level of, of the issues that people have, so we can maybe correlate that. So in either case, plenty of certified divers no longer or never did <clears throat> excuse me, understand how buoyancy compensator really works or how pressure changes on descent and ascent a check or affect buoyancy. The subject is unclear if a diver simply hasn't developed the physical ability to control his buoyancy properly. He really needs to practice and a scuba diving refresh course before attempting diving if you've been laid off from diving is recommended. And the last part they talked about is rapid ascents are frequently due to poor buoyancy controls. In many cases, said the diver simply panics, rockets to the surface, and of course, that's totally unacceptable. If water in a diver's mask makes him panic, it should be practice flooding and clearing his mask in a pool till it's routine. If a buddy constantly strays so far away he's impossible to alert in an out of air emergency, you should be either getting a new buddy, which is not a bad idea, but making sure that you check your tank, you, pr you check your pressure gauges, and you make sure they're working. And a large majority of the times, a lot of people diving in depth where you can't make a, an emergency safe ascent, never a bad idea to carry a reserve tank of air. It also says if the water is rough enough that water movement is going to be an issue, don't dive or end the dive the moment the difficulty or current surge or chop is experienced. And the last part says, Dan report goes on to explain that some of the leading contributing factors to diver fatalities still remain buddy separation and inadequate training for the dive being attempted. And again, both of these are violations of standard diving guidelines and often common sense. Ta-da! That's my two cents for the week. Excellent. Very good advice. Well, I think we are getting to that time of the show. Before we head on, do you have anything you would like to plug? How about you, Mac? 
Did we lose Mac? I'm not hearing from him there. Maybe we did. Hello, did I lose you? Oh, there he no, is. We there hear he you is. now. Oh, sorry. Yeah, about I wondered that. if you had anything you, you wanted to plug. Um, uh, not exactly we... plug, but I was going to say uh, the Michigan Underwater Divers do have two of their relatively new members who are going out to become commercial divers in Seattle, I believe. And uh, I say to them, congratulations on making that kind of decision. Good luck in your endeavors, and stay safe when you're out there completing your commercial diving school. That was uh, Jeremy and Skyler, wasn't it? Absolutely. Uh, congratulations, oh, guys. Congratulations. Good luck stay safe. Stay safe. Yeah, hang, hang, hang in there. <laughs> well, how about you, Kevin? Do you have anything you want to plug? Yeah, a couple things here. For one, you know, of course, I want to encourage our listeners to support your local dive shop. We always enjoy those those uh, online deals, but those online deals aren't going to fill your scuba tanks. Also, support your local libraries. There's a wealth of information in there, and you're not going to find everything you want on the Internet. Additionally, um, you know, I'd like to mention to our listeners, uh, you know, it's no secret that uh, we don't have as many people coming into diving as who are getting out of it there. And I've heard a common thread from many uh, presenters that are underwater this year at uh, uh, ghost ships, different, uh, you know, the spring shows, is how, you know, we're just not getting in the people who are, who are going out. So I'd like to really challenge our listeners to take somebody new diving. Uh, you know, try to stoke that interest, whether they like it because of, historical aspect they like it because of the camaraderie they like it because of the the ecology aspect they like it because of the wildlife the fish there are just a whole slew of different angles take your pick okay i want to encourage our listeners to get somebody new into diving this year um we had him on the show a few months ago terrasasenko was really adamant at his presentation at ghost ships about bring somebody new next year to ghost ships i'm going to say Everybody here, bring somebody, bring a, bring a non-diver with you to the shows, okay? If that doesn't hook them, I don't know what will. But let's get some new blood into this here because we all, you know, people are stepping out. And we're not getting as many people stepping in. So let's keep it rolling, guys. Okay. I'm thinking we're just that we need to be everybody needs to build a dive buddy and i don't mean literally build one but i mean go out find somebody who you think would like diving and then and, and get them involved uh, and, and you know with everything gotta, being online i was gonna say with everything being online i think there's a great opportunity for people to actually get out there and live life and 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 see that no matter how great that vr ar mixed reality system is it doesn't come close to approaching the experience you get with actually going scuba diving. Yeah, I, I don't think they're ever going to get an app for that. You know, they got some apps that make it a little bit easier and things, you know, there's all kinds of things just gas, for gas blending and dive tables and all that, but there's never going to be an app that's going to replace that feeling you get from laying your hands on the mast of a 19th century shipwreck down there, okay? You know, you, you read the stories, see the pictures, but being there, nothing replaces that. 
I mean, and, and, and we can do that here in the Great Lakes. We can go to these stories. That, that Samuel Mather I just mentioned to you, like I say, the, the, uh, the mass is, is at 90 feet. You know, you could go down there in sport depth and put your hands on that story that I just told you. You know, that ship still exists to this day and will exist for a long time. And that's on Lake Superior, so there aren't going to be any, any, any muscles on it yet. Well, or ever we hope. But it's, you know, bring somebody new diving out there and, and keep them diving. You know, yeah, we, we do get a lot, of, a, new, a lot of new recruits. We get a lot of new certification people. We also see that they come in and then they kind of come and go. The, the key is to getting them involved with an active dive club. You know, we have that with the Mud Club here in town. Um, you know, there are active dive clubs all over the country. Uh, but I've also heard from people telling me about how their former dive club is now extinct. You know, that there's pretty much no one longer, no longer anyone involved with it there. And some sad stories about a lot of camaraderie that's, that's gone because, um, you know, the dive clubs have just, they're, they're just going away. So bring people in, get them involved with the club, keep them diving. So, all right, I'm off my soapbox. Okay. So let's go ahead. I think it's that time of the show. Are you ready? Ever ready. Bring it on. Let's do it. And and, and this one's from Rod, and uh, thank you. Um, it's a little long, so uh, hang in there. After Quasimodo's death, the Bishop of the Cathedral of Notre Dame sent word to the streets of Paris that a new bell ringer was needed. The bishop decided that he would conduct the interviews personally and went into the belfry to begin screening process. After observing several applicants demonstrate their skills, he decided to call a day when a lone, armless man approached him and announced that he was here to apply for the bell ringer's job. The bishop was incredulous. You have no arms. No matter, said the man, observe. He then began striking the bell in his face, producing a beautiful melody in the clarion. The bishop listened in astonishment, convinced that he had finally found a suitable replacement for Quasimodo. Suddenly, rushing forward to strike the bell, the armless man tripped, plunged headlong out of the belfry window to his death in the street below. The stunned bishop rushed to his side. When he reached the street, a crowd gathered around the fallen figure, drawn by the beautiful music they had heard only moments before. As they silently parted to let the bishop through, one of them asked, Bishop, who was this man? I don't know his name, the bishop said. Sadly, but his face rings a bell. Oh, jeez. That's okay. not bad. Uh, That's uh, not uh, bad. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 but hold on. There's more. The following day, despite the sadness that weighed heavily on his heart due to the unfortunate death of the armless, uh, gosh, I don't even know what this word is, campionologist, must be bell ringer, the bishop continued his interviews for bell ringers of Notre Dame. The first man approached him and said, Your Excellency, I am the brother of the poor armless wretch that fell to his death from this very bell for yesterday. I pray that your honor his life by allowing me to replace him in his duty. The bishop agreed to give the man an audition as his armless brother, man's brother stopped to pick up the mallet to strike the first bell. He groaned, crutched his chest, died on the spot. Two monks, hearing the bishop's cries of grief, the second tragedy rushed up the stairs to his side. What happened? The first breathlessly asked. Who is this man? I don't know his name, sighed the distraught bishop, 
but he's a dead ringer for his brother. Jeez. Uh-huh. Ow. <laughs> Ouch. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Rodney. <laughs> <It's all right>. <laughs> <laughs> oh. And on that literal note, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. And have a good time doing it. <laughs>